0: I'm Amber and I'm Becca. From cranberries to cows and everything in between, this is Forward Farming. Hey guys, welcome back to Forward Farming. This week, I'm going to try to keep the intro as short as possible because we are joined by, I know I've said this before, but probably my favorite guest. It's going to be so hard to top this week's interview. I mean, if you are familiar with the Meat Eater franchise, you've probably seen him around. He's been on both the show and the podcast. He is very good friends with Steven Rinella. Um, He's also been on the Joe Rogan podcast, like the Joe Rogan, and he's joining Forward Farming today. Um, his name is Doug Duran. He is from Cazenovia, Wisconsin, and he is really big into conservation ships. So as a little Earth Day um, episode, we brought him on um, and, and talked all things, talked about a lot of different things. Doug is just one of those guys where it's so easy to get lost in a conversation with him. He's just so, so wise and, and has a ton of great information, a lot of great stories to share. So this, this episode is, is very special. Um, I hope you guys enjoy Doug um, as much as we did. And I'm, I'm this is going to be the first time in a long time that I am not going to babble. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let you guys enjoy. So without further ado, here's Doug Durin.
1: Well, what do you want to talk about? Well, I know,
0: I know you just already kind of introduced yourself to us, um, but I didn't hit record. So again, hashtag (laughs) bless this mess. (laughs) So, um, so now that we're kind of officially starting, um, Doug, thank you for coming on the podcast and joining us today. If, if our listeners are not familiar with you, um, do you maybe want to start by introducing yourself where you're from and, uh, kind of, kind of what you're up to now?
1: Well, my name is Doug Duran. I am from Casanova, Wisconsin, and it sounds way more exotic than what it is. Um, I am a fifth generation, uh, from this area. Um, I grew up in Casanova, and we had a farm two miles South of town. So we lived in town and had a farm South of town. There was a person who, a family who lived on the farm and milked cows. And then, um, we gave them every other weekend off and we did all the field work and whatnot. So, um, I grew up with a farm, not on a farm. And I like to say that the difference is when I got on the bus in the morning, I didn't smell like cow shit, like a lot of the <laughs> farm kids did. Um, and, uh, you know, so that's, uh, Southwest Wisconsin, the Driftless area, um, Northeastern Richland County, just a, a lovely area to be from, um, I guess that you guys reached out to me because of the work that I've done um, in conservation, and you know having a little bit of a platform and 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 knowing a little bit from my work with Stephen Ronella and the folks at Meat Eater.
0: Yeah, I have to say, my my husband Dan, he's the one that kind of introduced me to you through his love of Stephen Ronella and, and the Meat Eater. Um, franchise I guess is what it is now so we'd watch meat eater and uh we'd have to watch this one episode where you were hunting with him and he's like that guy that that's Doug he lives in Wisconsin you need to get to know this guy so I give well hell why am I talking
1: to you why am I not talking to your husband I
0: know I know I'm I'm waiting for him to just come barging through the door and just take over this interview for me but (laughs) I was almost thinking it would have been a great episode for the the guys to take over because they would have just lost their minds (laughs) Yeah. Well, we needed to get something done today. And I feel like they would just,
1: that is we, true. This, is,
0: this is business. They can have their leisurely conversation at different well, yeah, time. We
1: well, depending on how this goes, I'm not promising anything now, but depending on how this goes, maybe we can do another one.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That would be, that'd be great. We can talk, we can talk fun then. Um, But thank you again. I know you're busy. You sent me an email and you're just saying, yeah, I was with Steven all weekend and doing the meat eater podcast and you were just talking about being on Joe Rogan. So, you know, we're, we're nowhere near that caliber. So.
1: As I said, I was also talking to some high school kids over in Pewaukee a couple hours ago and, and the kid was like, Oh my God, I can't believe you answered my email. And I was like, well, let me tell you a story about that. Um, I don't know, 13 years ago, my wife and I were driving up to uh, Custer, Wisconsin, um, when we were going to the alternative energy fair and we were driving our Prius up there to the Alternative Energy Fair. If that tells you anything about us, I guess. <laughs> and on the way up, of course, we were listening to public radio, and um, it was a Friday afternoon, and we were listening to Jean Faraka on her show here on Earth. Uh, Jean's since retired, but um, and on Friday she had this this uh, segment called Food Fridays. And you know how people on public radio talk, right? They have that <laughs> low, groovy sort of public radio voice. And she says, and today on Food Friday, we're going to be talking to um, a, a, a young man from Michigan who now lives in New York. And he wrote a book, A Scavenger's Guide to Hot Cuisine. And uh, so Stephen Rennell, everyone. And Steve goes, hey, Gene, how you doing? <laughs> you know, and because uh, he's from Michigan and, you know, he's just a very unassuming guy. And uh, so we're driving along, and I'm like, "Wow, this guy's really pretty interesting." Um, and and the Scavenger's Guide, uh, for those of you who don't know, is is a really cool book about how he put together a um, what well, was a Thanksgiving meal on all kinds of different um, foods that he had gathered in the wild. Everything from uh, little pigeon babies from out under a, a bridge to uh, trapping sparrows or catching them with uh, um, snares and. Uh, some eels and then uh, some fish from Alaska with uh, Ron and, and Joan Layton, who I ended up spending some time with and just lovely people. And, and it was just really fascinating listening to him talk about Escoffier, the French chef, that the book um, was based on a cookbook that Escoffier, a French chef from the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, and how Steve like pitched this book idea. And, damn, he said somebody bought it. And so he had to go out and do this thing. And it was just really interesting. And then it gets towards the end of the, of the segment. And, um, and he goes, Oh, and by the way, I got this other book came out. It's called American Buffalo. And in, in search of a lost icon. And he talked about the book a little bit. I took a st- sticky note out of the glove compartment of the car. My wife was driving and I wrote Stephen Ranella on it and stuck it to the dashboard of the, of the Prius on the way to the energy fair. And, um, we go and we do the whole, you know, energy fair thing. And we stay up there Friday night. We stay up there Saturday night. And Saturday night, Otis and the Alligators are playing, which was kind of a blues band, you know, dance band. And so we were um, dancing on uh, uneven ground inside the tent. There's a point to this story, I promise. You. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so we're dancing on uh, uneven ground. And I wake up the next morning and my knee looks like a basketball, my left knee. And I was like, "Honey, I got a problem over here," and we may have had a, a couple of the uh, a, a couple of those shine on beers that they make for that uh, for that festival also. And any anyway, so Sunday morning we're heading back, and we had to stop and get like get bags of ice for me to put my knee on, you know, cover my knee. And we stop on the way back, and we we get into Madison, and we go to the pharmacy, and we get crutches. And I as we're getting out. Trish is like, you just get in the house. I'll unload the car. I mean, it was only a couple of bags, but so both doors of the Prius are open. The front doors of the Prius are open. And I'm like, you know, schlepping myself into the house on the crutches. Wind blows through, takes that sticky note, blows it across the yard. She sees it. And I don't think it was because she knew what was written on it. I just, she's just like, doesn't like litter. And she <laughs> trots over there and picks it up and looks at it and goes, oh, here's the name of that dude that you were, we were listening to on the way up. Had she not done that, none of all this other stuff would have happened in the last 13 years. So you know, it was a simple twist of fate. Um, she went and uh, cause I was laid up, you know, cause my knee. And so she went down to the borders bookstore and sure enough, they had both books and I read them both in just a few days and ended up sending him an email or send an email to the publisher. And, um, lo and behold, he wrote me back and, um, we became pen pals such as it was with email. And then, um, after about i don't know nine months or ten months or something like that um you know we had sort of this lovely conversation that kind of went back and forth and time would pass but then all of a sudden one of us would write to the other one and i said hey man if you ever you know this has been great and but if you ever want to hunt in wisconsin you know let me know and his email response was two words really question mark when question mark (laughs) and um uh in um 2000 and on new year's day of 2010. So new year's Eve, 2009 to uh, 10, I went to Madison and picked him up at the airport and we became friends that weekend. And, um, all this other stuff has happened since. That's wild. That is I mean, so cool. Yeah, I, and, and it really was. And, and, and uh, I was telling those kids earlier when I was talking to them, cause the kid was like, I can't believe you answered my email. And I was like, well, as long as I can. Um, and that, a day is going to come where I'm not going to be able to respond to everybody, but I try to respond to anyone who reaches out to me in a nice way. Not the ones that call me names and stuff because of some disparaging comment. And I made about Ted Nugent or something, but um, um, I try to respond in a thoughtful and respectful way as much as I can. And, uh, and it's, and as I told Steve on the podcast on Monday, when we were talking about it, and I was like, you know, I've, I've responded to a lot of people because you responded to me. And I feel like that's just kind of paying back the universe, you know?
0: Yeah. And I, I feel like that's also very Wisconsin type thought process too. So thank you. Thank you yeah. for that. We really
1: appreciate it. Are you both from Wisconsin? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. All right. So, Can you know, you tell
0: by our accents,
1: <laughs> Wisconsin, Yeah,
0: Wisconsin.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I couldn't, well, yeah, yes, I could. I just recognize <laughs> you as, as my people, I guess. Um, but it's funny because I have you know friends around the country and stuff, and and they actually refer to and and I don't know if this is a thing or not, but uh, they refer to the Midwest uh, Midwestern passive aggressiveness.
0: <laughs> I've heard Midwest nice, but yeah, I don't <laughs> think I've heard the passive but aggressive. I, I can be passive aggressive, so I guess I, <laughs> I won't recute that.
1: You no, know, I, well I can't either. <laughs> you know, as my father used to call it, telling someone to go to hell in such a way that they'll look forward to the trip.
0: There you go. <laughs> That sounds pretty accurate, actually.
1: That's a good motto. <laughs> my dad was, uh he was the king of stuff like that. I, I don't know if he made it up or if he just remembered all kinds of stuff. But um a lot of what I say comes from the the wisdom of my father, I guess. So um anyway, that's not what we came to talk about either. Or is it? I'm not sure.
0: Yes, a little bit of both. <laughs> so, um, Doug, one of the things that I really... And was attracted to you, uh for was kind of your your motto that you became almost kind of famous for is that it's not ours it's just our turn there you go yep oh. <laughs> um it's available
1: as,
0: <laughs> yeah yeah put per, if you're, if, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about if that you're not watching on youtube yeah yeah <laughs> you've got right? some merch on
1: <laughs> yeah um uh, so there was a question there was I. i I'm, I'm sorry
0: yeah, and and just as farmers, I mean, I'm fifth generation on
1: our cranberry marsh. Oh, you are great, cool. Yep,
0: raising the start of the sixth generation. So there's a reason why we've been around for this long, growing nothing but cranberries for as long as we have. Um, so how did you how did you kind of come up with that? And I mean, as farmers, it's pretty, pretty obvious, but how did is that kind of like the fuel to your fire and kind of what started it all? Or how did you kind of really
1: push did- that, I guess? Well, yeah, thanks. I'm happy to explain. I wonder if it is the, the, I think generational um, farmers, it is, it is one, it is our something that we learn, right? It's not ours. It's just our turn. Well, I've been heavily influenced by Elder Leopold and he says things, wrote many things much more eloquently than I ever did will ever say. And was a much smarter and wiser man than I, and something that I, realized a couple of weeks ago when I was on a podcast with Mark Kenyon from the Mediator group and we had Stan Temple on and, and, and Stan Temple is uh, professor emeritus from the university of Wisconsin, Madison, who had the same position that Ella Leopold did. Um, the wildlife ecology um, uh, department was established when Leopold was there. And the particular position that, that Leopold had uh, Stan Temple also had, and it was just wonderful to um, listen to, I've known Stan for a while, but um, listen to him talk about um, Leopold and, and, you know, sort of interpret Leopold. And, um, and you can read, there's so many quotes from Leopold. One that I really like is, um, uh, well, there's a, a number of them, but one of them has to do with private land and that is that conservation will ultimately come down to rewarding the private landowner for conserving the public's resources. And I, I find that, To be really um, timely now because of, you know, the time that he said that was when the Soil Conservation Service was just starting. And there's work that he was doing in uh, that that was done in Coon Valley and a lot of stuff that I'm sure you both have been involved with through like the Natural Resource Conservation Service and, and FSA and all those things have kind of changed. And, you know, and the other thing, um, I never get the quote exactly right, but it is essentially that once we realize that we're a, a member of a, of a ecosystem, rather than trying to dominate it, that we're a member of it, that we start to look at it more with love and caring. Well, as I said, Leopold, um, had tremendous influence on me. I remember, um, seeing a San, San County Almanac for the first time when I was in high school and the, um, librarian who, uh, you know, I was in the library. And um, for whatever reason, you know, I'm sure it was in there to do some research on something, but or, you know, read a sports magazine or something. And uh, she said, um, you, I think you would like this book. I mean, she knew a little bit about me and enough about me to know and, and it was sitting there on the, the desk. And then I did start to read it and, and sort of, I was kind of inspired by it, right. And um, uh, having grown up, as I told you earlier with a farm, not necessarily on it, my family, my great great grandfather came from Germany in the 1850s or grandparents came from part of the family was born in Germany, part of the family here. My great grandfather, grandparents had um, a sawmill and uh, actually had a railroad also that went from here to Laval seven miles long, or as he liked to say, it's not as long as all the others, but it's just as wide. Um, the sawmill um and so they were lumbermen right i mean they had they they um and, and you could look at the plat books but like in the late 1800s or early 1900s you see joseph turn and then the next time the plat map would come out that he'd be on a piece of a parcel of property but then it'd be gone and in um coming up on um 120 years ago in 03 actually but it's close enough that i say 120 years ago they bought that they had the sawmill um up here um <laughs> pointing behind me um uh in a town called germantown and that's where the sawmill in the original homestead was that's still in the family it's just owned by by a a cousin of mine um and then our farm or the land that became our farm was about a mile away so in in um oh three he bought um a part of that farm or part of that woods for the timber so a 400 acre farm and when we were farming big, we were, our cropland was 114 acres. Um, and now it's hundred um, acres of tillable, although it's on CRP, 60 acres of pasture and 240 acres of woods. So we had the woods to supply raw material to the sawmill that was a mile away. And um, my grandfather, who was a World War I vet, also had a sawmill here in Casanova. And I actually have a picture of my gran- great-grandfather standing by his railroad, or his the locomotive, everybody else, stand, I heard he was kind of a tough guy, mean old cuss, and everybody else kind of standing away from him. He looks very kind of Abe Lincoln-like. He's got a, a stovepipe um, hat on. And uh, and then there's some boards off to the side. My dad said, well, that was your grandfather's uh, sawmill there. So that was in the, you know, right after World War One. so in the late teens, early 20s. And our farm had been, or what became our farm had been, you know, that's, they'd carved a farm out of that. And, um, the barn, which is a little over hundred years old now is actually finished in, um, 104 years old. Now it was finished in 1918, uh, was, you know, wood that was sawn there or sawn it there and then brought, and, and the same guy built the barn or the same builder, I should say, or building, I don't know if it was a company or whatever, but group of dudes, um, built the barn on, on the, 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 homestead farm and then ours as well it was a big 100 foot barn you know all stone walls you know big barn for those days and uh it's all a mix of wood you know all kinds of stuff in there you know sort of classic um wisconsin dairy farm anyway there's a chunk of our woods that um that we just Um, did what's called shelterwood harvest on. And when I say just in the last 10 years, the shelterwood harvest takes a period of time to do that. And they were 115 to 125 year old red and white oaks. Farm's been in my family for 120 years. Well, was it cut before that? Actually, it hadn't been. There had been some sort of big wind event that knocked all the trees down up on this ridge and they never got to it, right? But what happened is that disturbance allowed oaks to grow up through it. Um, which what was what red and white oak really needs. So it was a very strong stand of um, almost almost purely red and white oak. And so um, my dad died um, a few years ago, um, five years ago now I guess. And um, so and he was ninety two when he died. So he kind of grew up with those trees. Mm-hmm. The rest of the farm, you know, they went through and they cut this and cut that and did you know all that kind of stuff. So it was for the time pretty well managed. That woods never really got touched much. We did a little bit of harvesting up there um, when I was, you know, like I don't know, late teens or something. They took a few white oak trees for uh, whiskey barrels, <laughs> and uh, which is, of course, what white oak is really valuable for now is wine and whiskey ba- barrels, also. Um, and um, and then you know it's just cool knowing a part of the history of the farm. Like there's where that field was that was all sugar maple back in the day, and they cut it and they, anyway. So I kind of grew up with that and it's sort of just a part of my, uh, my, uh, my thought processor. I mean, it's, I, don't, I, always, I like to say I got the, the dirt of the place under my fingernails and, and some of it in my blood too, you know? And, um, and I, I don't think we can, I, I mean, I, I, obviously it's a metaphor, but I really feel, I mean, I, I can't, and I'm sure I, you understand this connection to a piece of property that's been in your family for so long. Anyway, we were planning this shelterwood harvest in this woods that my dad grew up with. And um, before he died, he goes, well, Douglas, I I, I, can, I I can do my dad pretty good. He says, well, Douglas, I know it has to be done. I just didn't want to be the one to do it. And, uh, you know, comes a time, right? Um, mm-hmm. Oaks can live to be a really ripe old age, but at the same time, they hit an economic maturity. And so there's sort of a balance of all of that. Um, I was working with a DNR forester up there and I had had a consulting forester come in and mark the trees. And, uh, I was just getting him to approve it because we were in the managed or are in the managed forest law and we're walking, walking out of the woods and the shelterwood harvest for those of you who don't know is a very aggressive way, um, and planned way of regenerating red and white oak, which we're losing from the landscape in the driftless area, um, because they need particular kinds of disturbances and then we got these deer that love red uh white oak acorns and and browse on red oak seedlings so you really have to have a lot of anyway we're walking out of the woods and mike finley was the tanner forester i was working with and we paused at the top of the hill and and he goes you know i i have to tell you that i'm very uh, impressed with your willingness and your family's willingness to take on something like this shelter at harvest. Um, and think about the future. Right. Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, you know, a hundred years ago they were, eh." and, uh, he goes, yeah, but still. And, and it seemed like, while we were standing there on that Hill and I can remember the spot where we stopped and everything that I felt like I was surrounded by my great grandparents and my grandparents and, um, you know, to a degree, my parents. And then I was thinking about, um, you know what's next for that woods, because one of the things that Mike really um, made me think about was when you do forestry work, when you do a harvest, it's not about what, it's not just about what you're taking, but it's very much about what you're leaving as well. And the driftless area had been high graded for quite a while. They take all the best and leave all the crap, right? And so mm-hmm. we we're actually doing the worst first and then aggressively uh, managing in a way that we actually have a, a pretty good um, uh, regrowth of red and white oak. Anyway, it's like, it's just it's just kind of cool that, you know, it's not something everybody would do. And people, especially newer landowners, really want to kind of hold their land. Oh, this is the way I bought it. And, you know, doing nothing is a management plan. It's not just necessarily a good one, right? Um, and I, at that moment, had that feeling. And I said, well, I guess I look at it, it's just, it's not ours, it's just our turn. And he went, huh, yeah, write that down. And so it did. And um, it really has become my mantra. And it's spoken to people, not just in the state and the driftless. area. I mean, I was talking very specifically about our property, of course, but it was also about, it's come to mean, you know, I, I'm, I just love the driftless area in this region. And then you, it, it's resonated with people across the country. And quite honestly, across the world, we've had people contact us from all over the world to buy the merch. And, um, you know, it's really gratifying that it speaks to people in that way and in their own way. And I guess um yeah, it's that so that's that's where it came from.
0: Yeah, that's that's so huge that you can reach so many people with just a simple little message like that and have it be so relatable. I know like my mom, our, our farm is through my mom's side of the family and she has trees in her backyard and if you even come near it with, you know, just a little lobster claw trying to trim off a branch, it's like, oh my gosh, don't touch that. It's all yeah. you know, that branches. It's like, well, mom, you need to trim it up a little bit. But yeah. so she's very protective over her tree. So I think I'm going to pass this episode along to her and be like, no, you really need to listen to this <laughs> and understand how it sounds um, like your mom and I are
1: kindred souls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, for, for those people who, you know, like, like ourselves who have been on land, how would you kind of approach them to getting started on, on doing something like this or just taking care of their land in ways that they might not be used to or familiar with? Is there someone that they can reach out to to kind of start like a ship plan or like a management plan?
1: Yeah, um, well, there's a lot of folks who uh, it's really interesting to. Um, and i and, and i'm going to go down a rabbit hole here real quick but I'll, I'll try to jump right back up out of it again one of the things that's changed in our area a lot since when i was 12 years old right i'm 63 now um is that i remember when i was 12 the first person from away who bought land here and it was um it was interesting that um, someone was buying land here for the reason of doing conservation work on it um, i didn't realize that at the time but over time and it's still in his family the guy's name was hans morsebach and, and that land is still in his family um uh but it was like the first person now 65 percent of our county is owned by people who don't live here and you know there's a part of me it's like oh. on the other hand the farm the property that that cat bought was a mess you know it was the creeks were real wide and shallow it was highly erodible, all of that. And he ended up planting trees on it and stuff. And he started with, um, and so what I would suggest is this, um, and that has changed over time, I guess is, is my, that's one of the big changes that I've seen over time in management planning really starts with, with the, the individual, like, why'd you buy it? So I have a land management consulting and contracting business. And I didn't come on here to pitch that or anything, but, um, but i do it's your way. You know. yeah yeah well it's dughern.com and um, <laughs> and i don't i mean and if you go on the land management page of my website you'll see here are all kinds of resources for landowners and then down at the bottom it's like yeah you know if you go through all that and you still want to hire me you know, i mean it's i'm like i'm not i'm like the biggest soft seller there is when it comes to all this stuff um there are a tremendous amount of resources for um landowners out there and um one i'll tell you about is my wisconsin woods um and it was a project that i was actually involved with um at the beginning with through the Eldo leopold foundation and i continue to do work with the leopold foundation um and the american forest foundation there's a great book that i don't have a copy of here but you can get from from the Eldo leopold foundation called my wisconsin or my healthy woods and it really is a primer you know of 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 getting started in in management when i talk to folks when people contact me about doing land management work on their property a lot of them are absentee owners and usually it starts with they bought this piece of land you know 40 or 80 or whatever and they're like oh we're going to go out there on the weekend and we're going to pick berries and you know you know you know exactly what i'm talking about Mm -hmm. and uh and then they're like and then they're cutting firewood and they're doing this and then that and then they call me and i go out there and um and i was doing this woodland advocacy program for a volunteer program landowner landowner thing for a long time and universally people would say i can't believe how much work it is to own a piece of land Mm -hmm. so what i suggest people do is to first have that conversation with themselves why do we have this place um absentee landowners or, or new landowners especially why did i buy this place or or why did i or you know or in my case i Although Trish, my wife and I own 30 acres adjacent to the farm too, that we bought. Um, And sometimes we go, why did we buy this? Um, And so you have that, have that conversation with yourself and, and answer those big questions. Why did I buy it? And then what do I want to do with it? And then you also should explore your own conservation ethic and your own conservation idea. And that's where, the leopold foundation is a great place to go they're great um they have wonderful um resources there you know uw extension is another is a, is another great place um your uh county um, conservation department is another great place and the county almost every county in the state has a, a county dnr forester um who and these folks are all there for free you know and and so i'm always saying well and and you don't have to feel like the government guy is going to come out and tell me what to do or gal um my county forester uh, now uh, julie van cleve that i work with is probably one of the favorite my favorite people that i've worked with um in in the professionals that i've worked with because she's very much kind of pulls that out if you you know what it is that you're trying to do and then i mean don't get me wrong it comes down to where telling you where the bear goes through the buckwheat she'll do that too like you need to be thinking about invasive species control mm-hmm. um you know, deer control because of what they're doing to the ecosystem and all of that. She will, you know, and, but, but those are good conversations to have. I, one of the cool things for me is in the last 15 years, I've been involved with some of the stuff at DNR forestry in particular, and they've had, um, I've worked with several foresters and this one that I was telling you about has now become a regional supervisor. And he's had me be a part of training days for, for foresters. And like, how do you talk to landowners? And, um, You know, you don't have a forest, you have woods, you know, Um, it's not, you know, you know, don't don't use acronyms and and those sort of things, you know, or if you do explain what it is right away. Well, let's talk about the size of the tree. Oh, there's this thing called basal area and there's, you know, um, DBH, you know, the diameter at breast height. It's those, these are how we measure trees and, you know, um, so that people aren't intimidated by that. Um, but one of the things, if people, if people are interested in getting involved with their own management, as opposed to just hiring somebody to do it, um, which, you know, happens and I'm happy to do that for, for some folks, um, uh, that just self-education there's just so much material out there you can literally go on dougdurren.com and look at all and under the land management page and there's all kinds of stuff all kinds of free information on there and it leads you to more in my wisconsin woods through the elder leopold foundation is one of the one of the best places and it's not just for landowners either um this other thing that i do want to talk about in a little bit about getting people involved with conservation um it's an opportunity for them to learn like well, what what's tsi you know timber stand improvement um, and why is that important? Or um, invasive species control? Why is that important? And how do we do that? Um, wildlife management, you know, um, one of the things I talk about with hunters and, uh, and, and and access seekers and foragers and stuff is, you know, habitat, habitat, habitat it is so important to understand what that is and what it, um, what, what the various animals or whatever it is that you want to pursue what those require if you want to be a better hunter or a better forager or a better fisher person or any of those things you, you, you need to know the environment in which the your your prey um lives in and um i mean i know a few pretty good deer hunters who didn't know what the hell tree they had their bow stand hanging in but the best ones know everything that's going on you know so did i answer your question
0: Yes, you did. (laughs) And then some. Um, So I think you kind of started getting into this new project that you kind of started working on um, with Share the Land, where you're kind of merging uh, private landowners with hunters who might want to seek access on that and kind of connecting them together. Do you want to explain that a little bit? And if you're a landowner, how you can reach out to hunters and and vice versa?
1: Sure. So Sharing the Land is an initiative that Some friends of mine and I started, um, and uh, I happen to be the landowner, right? Um, One of them is a a woman named uh, Erin Holmes, and Erin was a a, a farm bill biologist, ecologist with uh, Pheasants Forever and NRCS in our area. And uh, Erin's one of the smartest people I've ever met, and she's also one of the most passionate people. Um, she's now working for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Missouri, but we, we, we stay in touch. And she's she's working with me on this project. Um, I need to invite you two to our, our kickoff um, and your husband's to our kickoff yeah. day as well. Um, it's coming up in a couple of weeks. But um, the idea of we believe in cooperative access. Um, there's a few basic premises, and you're probably aware of this, that access to private land has value. Most of the land, especially in southwest Wisconsin, but really in the is- eastern United States, most of the hunting and, and foraging and, and um, recreation land is privately owned. I mean, it just is mm-hmm. um not right or wrong, just the way it is, you know. Um and if you're going to and and again over time we've seen this evolution when I was a young man, I, it was actually I say I say when I was a kid a lot and um actually i know some people that if they listen to podcasts that i'm on they've turned it into a drinking game now every time that when i say (laughs) when i was a kid they you know they take a drink and they're schnockered by the end of it um anyway so drink um when i was a kid access was easy um you know, you knew everybody it was, you know, and there was all these little dairy farms and all these farms. And you had that opportunity, you know, we, heck, we all hunted together ran through the woods together and, you know, did all that kind of stuff together. As I said, over time now, 65, did I say this 65% of our land is owned by people who don't live here. First thing that people from away do is put up no trespassing signs. It's mm-hmm. like the first thing they do. And when they call me and I go out and meet with them, I was like, yeah, I want to take those no trespassing signs down. Cause you know, it kind of makes you look like a jerk. And they're like, yeah, but we don't want people. I understand. But in Wisconsin, as you two, I'm sure know, we are trespass laws. If you don't have permission to be on somebody's property, you are trespassing. Used to be when I was a kid, um, (laughs) when I was a kid that you had to have your land posted. But what people would do is then just go and tear the things down and say, well, it wasn't legally posted. (laughs) Okay. It wasn't legally posted, so I'm not really trespassing. I'm like, oh, boy. And I went, I mean, I grew up with that, right? And that guy, mm-hmm. that first person that I said from away, um, it's actually kind of a funny story. Um, he he bought this land and he drove a uh, brand new Mercedes-Benz. He was from Milwaukee. And to a kid from Casnovia, Mercedes-Benz, especially a brand new one, looked like a spaceship, right? <laughs> and so there was this place where we all accessed the trout stream. And it was by Charlie Green's place. And you just go through the fence there and go down to the trout stream and couple of buddies and I rode up there one day and here on the, on the fence, on the gate was a sign that said, is your, if your land is posted, stay the hell off of mine. I mean, what a great, you know, like, holy moly. And we all kind of looked at each other, you know, we were 12 years old on our bicycles. So we, we just went, you know, well, what it was, was that dude bought that land and he posted it right away. And it was like, I remember that land being, because we actually hunted right next to it. It was like, what do you mean? Posted, we can't uh, can't go in there, I guess. No trespassing, what the hell are you talking about? And we just went wherever we wanted to. So in a 50 year period of time, that all changed. Well, access in those days wasn't that big of a deal. You know, you just went hunting. And then if we, or you went running through the woods or picking mushrooms or doing whatever. But then it became, access has become more and more valuable because of guys like Steven Renella Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mean, all that, I mean, there's some, you know, there's, it's and it, 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 you know, in field and stream. And I remember like having a little book when I was a kid about deer hunting and that was it. And then there was Stan Brand's outdoor calling on, on channel three, which is the only station we got. And then, but you think about the whole outdoor media thing and this sort of blessing and a curse, right? There's just all of these things, the pros and cons of it all, <clears throat> excuse me. So one of the, the pros of it is that a guy like Hans bought that land And he improved it. The con of it is, is that it got shut down. And over time, as there was more and more of that, um, it became problematic. I can tell you right now on our 400 acres here, so I probably don't have to tell you what land is worth around here anymore. Mm -hmm. But our 400 acres out here, it used to be that the cropland was worth, you know, whatever amount of money. And the rough land was worth about half that. Well, now they're worth about the same. And that price just keeps going up and up. I mean, it, 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 and skyrocketing, accelerating in such a way that there is nothing that we could do on our farm right now. Like if, if, if I was going to say to my brothers and sisters, we all own it together in an LLC, you know, i want to buy y'all out. Um, and they go, yeah, well, what are you going to do to, I mean, I don't know what I would, there's nothing I could do there to make it where it used to be sort of driven by the return on investment, but. Ours is such a recreation property that there's high value for the recreation access of it. Um, and so properties are being bought because people want a, uh, you know, their piece of the driftless area. And, um, another side note, there's a, a thing called circle of cities. It's worth looking up. It was, um, written by, or as a concept put forward by a, um, Landscape Architecture, Regional Planning Professor at the University of Wisconsin, Dr. Phil Lewis, in the 60s, 70s, and early 80s, and everything that he said is coming to fruition. And the Driftless area is right in the middle of the circle of cities. And if you think about all the big urban areas around us, then that's people are coming here for that, right? And it's great. I mean, in some ways, it's really great. The small farms are gone. Mm -hmm. And they're gone not because these people from away were coming and buying the land. They're gone because big agriculture. I remember in the early seventies when Earl Butts was the secretary of agriculture, um, under the, in the Nixon administration, he said, get bigger, get out. And we've seen that happen. Right. Um, it's interesting to me now that we see sort of small agriculture coming back. I have some friends who are doing like small specialty stuff. And then of course, you know, CSAs and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, I just think those are the pendulum swings of 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 the long arc of time. Anyway, a lot of places that were well today, I'm shame These people are coming and buying it. I'm like, well, yeah, I, yeah. I I just kind of go well. I mean, it doesn't hurt that I'm in the land management business, and although I'm 63, I'm close to retiring. But, um, but, um, but. Uh, it's you know it's it's the pros and cons it's just it just is what it is and we can affect that one of the things i can tell you about people who are from away who buy land here is that they have the wherewithal to put into the property too um generally and generally there are people you can um influence that a guy like me could influence and so one of the ways i'm trying to influence them coming back to the subject is that um is to get them to think about allowing access to their property for people who are willing to help them take care of it. That's the long and short of it, right? It's just like when I was back in the day, when mm-hmm. we would, when I would be able to hunt on the neighbor's property, it's like, well, yeah, when they need a little help bailing, hey, guess what we were doing? Helping them mm-hmm. bail hay, and we didn't get paid for it, you know, because they'd come and help us too. But when it came to going hunting on there, we did it as a group. So it's the same idea. It's the cooperative nature of managing a piece of property. Um, and so cooperative access, you know, you've got land, you've got access seekers, you've got landowner. And if you look on our website, sharingtheland.com, on the front page, there's a Venn diagram where all those things come together in the center is the land. I know, uh, and, and so sharing the land is, is we're, we're building a place where people can come together and do that. Um, one of the things that landowners will say, well, I've let people hunt here, but how do I trust them? Mm-hmm. and access seekers are like um well you know i just want to go out there and do i want to just want to go hunting what's you know well then go to public land if you uh, and and then there's this the old school teacher and me and um and the follower of elder leopold who was involved who started a, a, a cooperative back in the day called the riley game cooperative and we the story is on the website also the riley game cooperative so i'm just ripping off leopold on this whole sharing the land thing (laughs) and with full knowledge leopold people all know this right bringing him forward into the 21st century the idea that he and some friends worked on a farm on some farms in, in riley um met these people wanted to hunt and they're like yeah well we don't have that we've got problems with trespassers and you know, we just don't seem to have that much game and all that stuff. And Leopold took a look around and he goes, well, your habitat kind of sucks too. I'm (laughs) sure he, I'm sure he put it more eloquently than that, but so they ended up, um, putting together a a program where they, um, where they worked cooperatively to improve the habitat. Um, and they formed a, it was, ended up being kind of a community of people working and, and, and the, the landowners provided the land. They may have provided some of the feed and, and some things. And then the, um, for they were specifically after pheasants there. And then, um, the city folk, um, Leopold and his buddies, um, they did the work and, um, boy, it was, it's just fascinating. It's something that Leopold did that you don't read that much about. Um, because at the same time he bought the land over in Baraboo and, uh, wrote a sand County almanac, um, And so it's with that spirit that we've brought forward this idea of sharing the land, sharing the land.com. And, um, that whole idea of access has value that if you're willing to put, um, I hear this from landowners all the time. I want to trust people. Well, Mm -hmm. how do you trust people? You have a relationship with them. So how can we develop that relationship? The landowner has a should have a management plan. Ah, coming back <laughs> down to that. Why do you have a management plan? So you, you know, what needs to be done? Um, I, I have a, a friend who allowed people to access his property just based on the work that they did on a trout stream that he doesn't, it's not on his land. It was down on some public land, but he saw him there doing it. He got a chat with him and, and they said, Oh, we've been out, we were out, um, public land, Turkey hunting. And, you know, thought we'd spend a little time cleaning up the trout stream. My, well, my buddy's a big avid trout fisherman and, um, And he goes, well, how's the turkey hunting going there? Like, well, it kind of sucks. He goes, well, you know, I, we got, I got 240 acres up the road here. Nobody's hunting it this season. If you guys would like to go up there and hunt, you're welcome to. So he rewarded them for their contribution to conservation. The first person, I mean, we've had plenty of people hunt our property. The first person that I invited because of a purely because of a contribution to conservation besides Steve Rinell, um, was this friend of mine, Brock Rosencrantz and Brock, is a young man. I don't know. He's 29, 30 years old now. And I met him. He had volunteered to be on our, our County conservation Congress, a delegate to the Wisconsin Con- County conservation or conservation Congress. And I'm just at the meeting and I'm yakking with him beforehand. And that's happened on at this time of the year. And Brock said, uh, you know, we're just talking. And I said, how's your Turkey season looking? And he said, well, um, you know, pretty good, but gee, I lost the, the private lane. I mean, he wasn't, Sidelone up to me i mean he kind of knew that i had this um he knew me from meat eater but um because that wasn't that many years ago seven or eight years ago but you know i'm just like this dude from richland county just like him we're just talking about stuff and he goes ah you know i had a i used to have a really good nice piece of private land to hunt but that just got sold but i'm looking for some other and you know but i got some other ideas and i was like oh hey man if you um you know, if you, what season do you have? And he told me, and I was like, Oh, I don't have anybody hunting. And so if you run out of, you don't get the opportunity somewhere else, let me know. Um, you can hunt in my place. And I think at that minute, he quit looking for another place to hunt, but, <laughs> but he had, he was volunteering his time, making a contribution to conservation. And in return, you know, I mean, I could see he was a good dude. Right. And so in return, I gave him that opportunity. He's been a part of it ever since. I mean, he's, a, and it turns out he's a carpenter. And so he's helped me with, you know, some projects around the, uh, um, around the property. And, um, and then uh, there's, you know, a couple other uh, local, one of the, um, one of the other people is a a guy who uh, built the kiosks that we have for our chronic wasting disease Mm drop-off site. Um, um, Another uh, fella is, uh, he's a IT guy and guess who does my websites? (laughs) And, um, you know, I mean, and and he also does things on the farm. Um, Aaron, who I was telling you about, um, earlier, even though she's in Missouri, she comes up and I'm like, she's like my, not only my spiritual advisor about conservation, but also very specific about things that I can do, um, and helps me with some of those things as much as she can. Um, Lindsay, who, um, actually lives in the state of Washington and she's a small, um, I don't know, you call her a backyard farmer. She's got 10 acres and she raises some sheep and she does all, I mean, she's fascinating you know, and, and actually very accomplished conservationist. Um, uh, she and I got connected some years ago when I was out in Seattle for a, a thing with meat eater and, and met her and her husband and um, have kept in touch. And so she actually works with me or works for me um, doing, she's the one who sends out the merchant stuff, but um, she's also does a bunch of volunteer stuff. So she'll be here for the kickoff party. Um, and then last year, well, Steve asked me, well, how many people hunted your farm I accessed your farm last year? And I was like, I think it's 40. Oh wow! And a lot of them, their contribution to conservation was coming and killing a damn doe on our farm because <laughs> we have, uh, and that was one of the things that motivated me to do this. Seven, eight years ago, I shot. Um, eight years ago, I shot seven deer. I'm sorry. Um, eight years ago, I shot seven does one afternoon, and you know, you got, you know, you a got all deal. in the gut, and, you know. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I was just stacking them up like cordwood, and then I'm gutting them out, and I kept two for myself. And the other ones I took down to the venison donation program. But even in that moment, I like, why am I doing this? A couple of things. One, I don't, I, I, I love white-tailed deer. Mm -hmm. I'm fascinated by them, all of that, which is why I'm concerned about chronic wasting disease too. But I felt like a deer exterminator at that point. I'm like, I I don't want to feel that way. Yeah. Um, I mean, at least
0: you could donate it, but at the same time, (laughs) if someone else could come in, help you out and then also feed their family,
1: feed their family um understand why we were doing it um that be that was their contribution to conservation as i was as far as i was concerned um dana fulton who's the if you uh, channel three she's the uh, uh one of the weather people there and her husband jared um are part of my co-op now and um she and i met because she wanted to do a thing about uh it's not ours it's just our turn and we did on channel three and and talked about conservation and stuff and she's a real um novice hunter um and she's like well we really want to come and help you with something and I I, I just invited them out because of the what uh, because she had had me on and I'd met her husband and he's a fisheries guy and you know interesting people and they came out and hunted and stuff and um they're just like chafing at the bit to come out and do something and I was like understand you came out and took a doe that is a contribution to conservation as far as I'm concerned and you're right they got the experience they got the uh, the meat. They got the understanding of, I mean, I, I spent some time explaining to them why we're doing this. They learned about CWD. I mean, there's a lot of things that happen, you know, as a result, it's not hard for me to find people to hunt at my place. I can tell you that <laughs> I got a list. I, I say, that's like uh, getting green Bay Packer uh, season tickets. You know, it's a long ass list <laughs> every Every year, a couple of people move up, you know, come off of it, but it, you know, it's, it's kind of random as to who does and who doesn't because ultimately I still want I, I'm still people that I in, invite um, are interested or interesting. Um, Steve, um, for instance, uh, on his podcast last spring invited Ya Yang, this mung guy from um, Minneapolis and his daughter to come and turkey hunt with me before he even talked to me about it. <laughs> and it. And all of a sudden I'm getting text messages from him, hey man, do you haven't listened to the podcast yet? And I'm like, uh, no he goes, well, I kind of invited a guy to come hunting uh, next spring. Is that okay? And I'm like, well, I'm flattered that you would be um, comfortable enough to invite someone else to my farm. Um, I think flattered is the word I use now. It's not exactly the word I used then. I think I said, what the hell? <laughs> anyway, um, and then Jan, his daughter came and uh, I'm just fascinated by the Hmong people on their history and how, you know, the whole Vietnam era war and all this stuff that went on. And so that's been a really interesting thing. And so, yeah, yeah, I moved up the list because of who he was, you know, Joe Rogan and Brian Callen hunted on my farm. Well, you know, Steve called me and said, Hey man, we just did this hunt with these guys. Would you be willing to do another one? And, um, and that was before we were doing sharing the land anyway. Um, but the things that's never shown on this show is that because, you know, you you can only focus on so many people, there's seven or eight other people hunting at the same time. And, you know, my neighbors and my buddies or I think on the first episode, there were like a whole bunch of folks came. But, um, and a landowner and through sharing the land can kind of, you know, it's sort of, we're trying to break down that barrier a little bit between the access seeker and the landowner <laughs> through a way that makes a lot of sense, right? That there's value in this. Um, you guys are probably aware that leasing has become a big thing in the state that you lease land for hunting. And, you know, quite honestly, I, I leased my farm for 12 days to four guys for bow hunting. And those guys, they've been doing it for six years. And they're always like, well, let me get this straight. We pay eh, a dollars to come here. And, and then the day after we're gone, you got people coming in here. who Don't pay anything. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> but they get first choice of, cause they're bow hunters, you know, and they're, you know, predominantly looking to kill big giant bucks and that's okay. Um, and they pay a, 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 a fair amount of money and um, that pays um, that keeps my siblings. Um, you know, the, my partners It's like, that money goes into the pot that helps pay for the the parts of the, because it costs money to run a farm, you know, to own a farm too, or own land. I mean, we're not, we're just, we got, we're in CRP. We sell a few cattle. We get this money from them that's kind of it. And the value of that, it's not much return on something that's worth, you know, I'm not embarrassed to say two and a half million dollars, you know, I mean, the return on that should be a hell of a lot more than it is. But um, so it's sort of this balance, and then my siblings are like, cool, now you do whatever you want. You know, and so I do and, and, they're, and they're fully behind this whole, it's not ours it's just our turn and, and the sharing land idea, and, and all of that. Um, and they don't have to be I mean, I know other families where I know other situations I should say where the family got torn apart over, um, land and value. And it was like, there's five of us, you know, we could all do it with a half a million dollars if we just sold the place, you know, mm-hmm. um, but then we wouldn't have this, so there you have it. That's sharing the land.
0: That's, that's pretty darn cool. I know. Uh, like, like with my dad, he's, he's very protective (laughs) over what he has. So this, I think, again, like I mentioned with my mom, I'm going to have to pass this along to him so he can kind of get a better understanding of, of the good that it could do. Um, but I think, again, I don't want to take up too much of your time and I know you've got a bunch of other fun stories to share. So we might have to have you back on closer to hunting season and talk some hunting stories. Um, but as just, uh, just as a, as a landowner, what is kind of your biggest takeaway or biggest suggestion, um, for someone to take better care of their land? Like what's kind of like your big, um, uh, like a, like a good first step to take.
1: Well, developing an adaptive management plan, um, and adaptive is an important word to that because one of the things that I, that I live by is seemed like a good idea at the time. Right. Um, And uh, that happens in life more often than it should. It seemed like, well, you know, multiflora rose is a great example. It was an introduced species, right? Now it's an invasive species. When they introduced it, I'm sure it seemed like a good idea at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and now we spend all this time trying to control it. Um So Or as Bob Dylan used to say, it used to go like that. Now it goes like this, (laughs) you know, things change over time, but to have a plan and be thoughtful about it and be flexible, um, work with professionals, but also be in control because ultimately it is yours, you know? Um, And I think that if um, someone, uh, either a private professional or a, public professional is telling you this is what you should do um i'd be a little skeptical of that as opposed to someone who say here are the possibilities you need to decide what's going to fit best for you um there are some universal truths in all of that too but um and they're and they, they should point that out for you but to to, to to start with a start with a plan and really be um you know, be open to the possibilities.
0: Perfect. I think that kind of sums it up pretty darn well. Um, before we let you go, Doug, we always like to ask our guests just some, some random questions, Wisconsin questions Oh. before I let you go. Um, so if you, what's your favorite, do you prefer squeaky or fried cheese curds?
1: Oh, squeaky, fresh squeaky. <laughs> Car Valley Cheese Factory is right over the hill from me over here. It's yeah, like going to the car Valley cheese <laughs> factory. Yeah. That's the stuff right there.
0: Um, I don't know. I don't know if, are you a big chocolate milk drinker? <laughs>
1: uh, I used to be.
0: Okay. Becca and I, we this, have this one's this big, important. We have this big debate. Um, we're big fans of quick trip chocolate milk. And I don't know if you dabbled in it, but they have a brown cap chocolate milk and they have a green cap chocolate milk. Are you, are you experienced with this?
1: Not, but, I'm, but, but you know what I'm going to do right after we get down here, I'm going to a quick trip and take a look.
0: <laughs> so if, when you go, make sure you get the brown cap and the green cap and, and try them both out and you're going to have to let us know which. you It's prefer. sort of like the
1: Pepsi challenge, huh? What's, what's kind of. Prefer?
0: Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: So I'm guessing that one of you is brown cap and the other is green cap.
0: Yeah. Don't so tell me Kirk, who's who. No, no. Okay. 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 <laughs> So don't even look at the label. Just go in with an unbiased opinion, and you're gonna to to let us know
1: <laughs> which one tastes you- better. That's yep. great. That's great.
0: <laughs> um, so let's uh, let's kind of wrap this up here, Doug. Uh, where can people find you? I know you've mentioned it before, but if they want some of your merch, if they want to check out. Um, some of your resources, what's the best place to get a hold of you, all that other good stuff. Where can the people find
1: you? I appreciate that. Um, my Instagram handle, and it's where I kind of do all my social media stuff is at Doug Duren, uh, creatively enough. That's right. <laughs> D-O-U-G-D-U-R-E-N. Um, and I, I tend to post a lot of stuff about conservation on there or just whatever the hell is on my mind. Um, and people seem to dig it. Um, and so that's, you know, I'm, I'm on Facebook too, but it's just an extension of my, uh, I have a personal page, but that's different. And, but that's just an extension of, it's not ours, it's just our turn also. Um, so that's Instagram. And then, um, my website is dougdurin.com again, easy to remember. Right. And then the, uh, sharing the land is sharing the land.com and, um, I'd appreciate it if anybody like to go there on the sharing the land website, there'll be more and more stuff coming forward. This is really 2022 is really our, our year of, of expansion and proof of concept. And I would love to have conversations with you guys uh, more about that. We've got a, um, a few different people that were, um, were, um, uh, landowners, but then also some other groups and stuff. And it, it might be something worth featuring, you know, um, over time. And, um, I'm like a big fan of the, I'm a big fan of the small guy being a small guy, a large person, but a small whatever. And, um, and I like to see things grow organically. So when I saw your, um, saw your request and I kind of checked you out and I was like, as I said, I'd like to learn more about, um, the cranberry business. And, and, uh, I know a little bit about the dairy business, but like what Becca's take on that is just so interesting when I, when she started telling me her story. So I hope that we can stay in touch and, you know, and, and kind of keep, we're moving in, you know, in some of the same circles or our circles are in inner in inter, um, intersecting. intersecting. Um, and so uh, yeah, uh, this is really great. And I really enjoyed being here.
0: Yeah. I, I definitely learned a lot. Um, I, like I said, I think a lot of people are going to benefit from, from hearing your knowledge, your, I mean, you've got so much going on up there that it's. I think this is going to have to be a multi-series thing with you if you, if you're willing.
1: <laughs> well, I'd certainly do it again. And oh, and the other thing, of course, where you can find me is if you go to um, Meat Eater uh, with Stephen Rannella. Um, I'm sure Steve would appreciate me uh, um, mentioning that. Um, I think that when it comes to um, hunting and recreation, outdoor recreation of that sort and where at intersects with con- uh, conservation that um that meat eater is the best there is mm-hmm. um and uh i had the good fortune i've had the good fortune of being on seven episodes of his show um a couple episodes of a thing called back 40 which was a land management um thing that's on their youtube channel yesterday today's thursday tuesday one uh an episode just came out that we um filmed on the farm last December with Cal Ryan Callahan, who's the director Mm -hmm. of conservation with meat eater. Um, And that's about deer hunting in Southwest Wisconsin and chronic wasting disease. And I think Cal did a great job with it.
0: Yeah, that was great.
1: It was a pleasure to to work with those guys on it. And uh, there should be another one coming out pretty soon that part of it was recorded on the farm but, um, I'm not really in it. It was a turkey hunting episode. There might be a section at the end, speaking of milk, where I just deliver two glasses of milk to the table and then walk away. Um, I haven't seen it yet. So, um, I'm hoping that that's in there because it was sort of Alfred Hitchcock-esque. Um, and so, yeah, you know, lots of, lots of places you can find me. And, um, I, I really appreciate the, the opportunity to be on here and certainly will, uh, let folks that follow me know about your podcast as well. Great.
0: Well, thank you again so much for all of this. Um, again, go out to Quick Trip, get that chocolate milk, and, <laughs> and let us know what you think. This, this, is, Wait, like, this is a hot topic. <laughs> topic
1: huh? That's a hot topic. It
0: is. We're um, actually talking to someone from Quick Trip uh, later this afternoon, so that's always kind of like our our joke with them. So I'm. This is going to be kind of like the tiebreaker of all tiebreakers. So <laughs> this <laughs> is this is important. <laughs> pressure. No pressure. pressure. No pressure, just don't get it wrong. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Uh Uh,
0: Well, thank you everyone for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this. Um, If you're not following us yet, you can go follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Forward Farming Podcast. And then you can also follow our personal pages. Amber is at Cranberry Chats and I am at Becca Helby. Um, So thanks for listening and we'll catch you next week. Bye. Bye.